Skilliget perspikvunst. Quid? Quas sit farina res? Quas? Cupidoneskiosa doritur. Restat quid asebes? Pro. Lumpangre boscolomnis. Tam leniter locos. Et tot profusis dulce dinibus. Manet ruina History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir and I am here in the HHE studio with the Vene Vidi Vici to my Abbey Claudie Fuji. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Salve, Ryan. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> For now. So, yes, Peter, last year the Derzelator gave us Latin in Bahrain during 1937 to 1945. So, now that a whole year has passed, you've had a year to do this, Pete, (laughs) what have the listeners got in store for today? Well, all I can say is, Hac nocte te ad sinum persicum ductorusum ubi mirabili, Orion. Yeah. Comprehendo lignum vitae mirabilis in veniamus. Discimus de propaganda in provincio in duos in orbe terrarium ballorum proctius savare de beamus. Etiam de insulis quae de decenius magna contenene disputae erant discimus. Postremo etiam moderno dinosauro acaremus, vel alio modo Ryan panemus videsne seta, et nos omnes aliquo modo ad rem latinium referium actuare sumus grata terra duorum marium grata maragriatum insula grata Bahrain. Well, that all sounds confusingly fascinating. I have no idea what to expect. I don't even know what language you're going to speak in in this episode. But why don't you start at least at the very basics by orienting me on the place? And that place is Bahrain. That is correct. It is officially the Kingdom of Bahrain. And that's a name that comes from the Arabic Al-Bahrain, which means the two seas. Uh, It's actually an archipelago of islands, about 80 islands in total. There's a mix of natural and man-made islands. I think 33 of them are natural and the rest are man-made. But it's mostly centred around Bahrain Island, which is more than 80% of the country's land mass. Okay. It's in West Asia. That's the block of land between Africa and the Indian subcontinent. Sticky down bits squeezed in between Africa and uh, Asia, essentially. Oh, okay. The neighbours are Saudi Arabia and Qatar, although it's actually attached. It is an island nation, an archipelago nation, It's actually attached to Saudi Arabia, courtesy of the King Fahd Causeway, which is a series of bridges and causeways that stretch for 25 kilometres. That's a lot of bridges. And a lot of causeways. A lot of bridges and causeway. The country covers 760 square kilometres, or 290 square miles, which is 0.14% of a France ride. (laughs) That's pretty small, isn't it? Yeah, you're going to need 726 Bahrains to make up a France. (laughs) You won't be surprised to learn it's the third smallest nation in Asia after the Maldives and Singapore. Oh, Wow, okay. I really had no idea how big it was, so that's fascinating. Not a bad population, though. It's got one and a half million people live there. Okay, that's a lot. Yep, 80% of those are Islamic, most of them are Shia Muslims, and 12% are Christian, and then there's the rest. It's always the rest. The rest. Who are these other rests? Uh, The official language is Arabic. Okay, makes sense. It does, doesn't it? And Bahrain is a partial democracy. It's got an elected lower house and an appointed upper house, a bit like the UK, the House of Commons. However, the difference with the UK is the ruler, King Hamad bin Salman al-Khalifa, has also the ability to rule by decree, which I don't think is anything you'll see King Charles doing anytime soon. So you can just wake up in the morning and be like, right, that's it. No more single-use plastics. Exactly. He has that power, apparently. Funnily enough, this country has only been a kingdom since 2002, when the current king, who was at that time an emir, he made the change. He went, I'm bored of being an emir, I'm going to be a king now instead. Oh, okay, fair enough. Well, yeah, and it's funny though, because it's not like he had to become king or he was even new. His family, the Al-Khalifa family, have been ruling Bahrain since the late 1700s. They started in the role of Hakim, they became emirs, and now they go by king. I guess they just like to change every now and then. Yeah, it's just like a rebranding, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. We're kings now. <laughs> the geography is, I'll let you take a wild stab in the dark. Hot. Hot, flat, 
Sandy. Sandy, yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course, a lot of it has now been built up into urban landscape as well. Of course, yeah. As you'd expect in a desert place, as you say rightly, uh, it can get hot. There's seas around Bahrain are quite shallow, so that means they can heat up and you get very high humidity and summer temperatures that can get up to 40 degrees centigrade or 104 Fahrenheit. Sounds like a nice little destination for some sun tanning. Yeah, yeah, and the Bahrain Marathon, I would imagine, is a popular choice as well. Oh, so hot. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to start selling ice creams in Bahrain. That might be an idea. Now, the flag, Ryan, is white on the pole side for about a third of the flag's length, and then the flappy side, as I like to call it, is in red. But instead of a straight line down separating them, it's kind of a zigzag, which looks like someone's cut it with pinking shears or something. Pinking shears? Pinking shears, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Never heard that. (laughs) Okay, neat. Yeah, and another interesting thing is the flag looks a lot like the flag of Qatar, which is a neighbouring country. But you can tell the difference because the red is a slightly darker red. And instead (laughs) of five triangles on the zigzaggy bit, there are nine triangles. And the flag itself is longer. So subtle differences, but they're there if you know what to look for. It could be easily confused, couldn't it? Yeah, it really could. The national anthem, though, I know you're interested in that. I love a national anthem. It's called Bahrainuna, or Our Bahrain. Bahrainuna. Yeah, this was composed as an instrumental song in 1942, and uh, you, you had to just hum along for the first 40 years because they didn't add lyrics until 1985. Uh, but do you want to have a listen? Well, of course I do. When are we going to play it? We're going to do it now. Okay. That is a strong start. This is fun. I like this one a lot. It is, isn't it? The lyrics go like this. Our Bahrain, our king, symbol of harmony. Its constitution is of high status and position. Its charter is the way of Sharia, Arabism and values. Long live the kingdom of Bahrain, country of nobles, cradle of peace. Doesn't rhyme, does it? Uh, I think it's probably better in Arabic. Yeah, probably. (laughs) It's really hot. In Bahrain (laughs) I'm so hot I want to get some rain (laughs) Uh, Can I introduce you in some Bahrain facts? Only if I can say Bahrain facts! You can, I know you love that I let you do that job Thanks Bahrain was the first Middle Eastern nation to host a Formula One race This was back in 2004 Okay It's a small area you'd think that Maybe it would be another an area that had much larger land. Yeah, they go around lots of times, though, so it's OK. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, it's also home to no less than three, count them, three UNESCO World Heritage Sites. That's a lot of UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Yes, if you head down there, you can see the Dillman Burial Mounds, which are burial mounds dating back to between 2200 and 1750 BCE. It's a good job that people used to bury people in mounds. Yeah, it was helpful, wasn't it? It's a little yeah. flag on the top. People here, dig it up, have a look. And also there is a thing called Kalat al-Bahrain, which is the ancient harbour and capital of Dilmun, which is a tell. A tell is kind of a mound or a hill, which is like layers and layers of archaeology, basically, now. So an archaeological site, which in this case, they believed was being continuously occupied from 2300 BCE to today. Dilmun doesn't sound like a place that you'd find in Bahrain. It doesn't, does it? It's a funny little word, but uh, it is a thing. Uh, Bahrain, Ryan, is also home to the Tree of Life. No. For real? For real. Uh, the Tree of Life is a tree, it's a gaff tree, is the kind of tree, which is uh, found in Bahrain. Uh, but the Tree of Life is one specific tree, which is believed to have been planted in 1582, making it over 400 years old. That's an old tree. It's old, but not the oldest tree we've ever come across. But what is interesting about it is that this tree is thriving with green leaves and has grown to 9.75 metres or 32 feet high, whilst rooted in an area that has no obvious source of water. Wait. It's on top of a hill with almost no rainfall. There are no other trees around anywhere in the area. Where's it getting its water from? Well, that's the question. Some see it as a wonder of nature. Some say the tree was once in the Garden of Eden and is mystically kept alive. Yeah. Others say it's got really deep roots. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a tree expert. You take your pick, Ryan. <laughs> but it didn't always have deep roots, though, did it? So well, I yes. think I think you're right. Garden well, of Eden, it must be. Right. Well, it's sufficiently fascinating that 65,000 people a year visit this tree. Does it grow apples? I, I do not believe it grows much of use to be honest with you uh, but worth a visit because one trip advisor review says quote it is sheer magic that a tree had grown and survived for hundreds of years 
True. But in the interest of balance, another reviewer writes, it's literally just a tree and nothing around. <laughs> it's not fun or anything special. <laughs> Was that Paul Dursley? <laughs> it could have been, couldn't it? Um, but yes, that is the Tree of Life. Check it out if you're in the area. But if you are in the area, Ryan, also don't forget your scuba gear. Because Why? Bahrain is home to Dive Bahrain, which is billed as the world's largest underwater theme park. Wait, wait, what? I know, How does that, that work? I thought this too. I was looking for underwater roller coasters and whatnot. But what yeah, it is, it's yeah, kind yeah. of a, an artificially created diving site. So it's 100,000 square metres of stuff underwater, including they sank a Boeing 747 that you could go and have what? a little swim around underwater. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow, you'd uh, be so cool sitting in the pilot seat underwater. Yes, but don't forget to secure your own mask before helping others, right? <laughs> <laughs> Chicken or fish. <laughs> so that's it. That's Bahrain. That's oriented. Do you know where we are? Yes, I do. I now know exactly where we are. And that's good because I'm hoping you're about to give us some history after this. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. You want to go to the movies tonight? Oh, good idea. What's on? Well, actually, there's a whole festival of classic Bahrainian movies. Oh, very timely. It sounds great. Yeah. They're playing an old musical called Singing in Bahrain. Oh, right. Or if you fancy a drama about an autistic man and his brother, we could go see Bahrain Man. Oh, God. Actually, I wouldn't mind going to see Snakes on Bahrain. Oh, for... Or if we hurry, we could make the early screening of Bahrain's Bahrains and Automobiles. Oh, do you know what? I'm just going to stay home. Yeah, let's stay in. We can watch Breaking Bad instead. Ah, Breaking Bad. Now that sounds better. Yeah, starring Bahrain Cranston. Ryan. Yes, Pete? There is something wrong with your Bahrain. Alright, Petey, we are back. It's us, it's me, it's you. I want to know some history. Get going. I will. Let's go ab initio. That is to say, from the beginning. Nice. 2000 BCE, there seems to have been a settlement or civilization in the area we've already come across, known as the Dilman or the Telman civilization. Well, these people would walk around the area and go, this would be an excellent future World Heritage site. I will put my town here. It's a good job they did that. It was lucky for the World Heritage people, wasn't it? <laughs> a little bit of foresight. It's nice. Yeah. Our ancestors were very smart. They sure were. Now, Dilman was an empire that seems to have been located in the Persian Gulf on a trade route between Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley civilization. So you know, these people were covering a lot of ground right from an early age. Yeah, those are two big civilizations. Today, we can even see remains of a temple known as the Barber Temple from around 3000. 2000 BCE. Is that where they got the haircuts? <laughs> the Barber Temple. I missed some low-hanging fruit there, didn't I? <laughs> you really did, yeah. <laughs> now, Ryan, some say that Bahrain was such an important trading centre for the Sumerians, it became known as a sacred place. And there's a theory that Bahrain was the inspiration behind the story of the Garden of Eden. There's a tree from there. Exactly so, although that one was much later. But where there are riches, of course, there are people who want to have them. And the Dilmun Empire came under the rule of various foreign empires eventually from about 1500 BCE. There was the Sealand dynasty, the Kassite dynasty, the Assyrians, the Achaemenids and the Persians. The Greeks moved in under Alexander the Great. So a similar story to what we saw when we talked about the Persians, actually, if you remember. Mm -hmm. So around this time, when uh, the Greeks moved in, the area became referred to as Tylos. And it had a reputation then as a centre of the pearl trade. Uh, and that is according to at least the Roman author Pliny the Elder. People loved pearls in the past. People did like a pearl. They were short of things to do, weren't you, and uh, ornamentation. Yeah. Were difficult to get as well, weren't they? That's true, there was a struggle, wasn't it? I think we're up to now the 3rd or 4th century CE, uh, and this is where Christianity arrives, in particular Nestorian Christianity, right? What's Nestorian Christianity? Well, I was hoping you'd ask that, because I've got a lovely quote here that will really clear it up for you, as it did for me. OK, good. Nestorian Christology promotes the concept of a prosopic union of two persons in Jesus Christ. Oh, right. Yeah, so OK. I that's Makes clarified sense. for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, was really, I thought, that's great. Thanks for that. I'll just quote that directly and move on. <laughs> Apparently that means he's actually two people, a human person and a divine person in one. Ah. Uh, <laughs> OK, that's interesting. Is that like a demigod? <laughs> no, I think a demigod's a half god, half human. But he's all God and all human at the same time. Oh, we're really all getting God, into it now. All human, <laughs> all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Jesus Hour. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's move forwards, though. In 629, apparently, the prophet Muhammad, who came onto the scene, wrote to the leaders of Bahrain and said, I've just invented Islam. How do you fancy converting? And they said, that sounds brilliant. 
That said, a Wikipedia told me the first real contact between Mohammed and Bahrain was when he planned an attack on the area for plotting to attack Medina, but I think possibly the letter and the threat of attack worked together to make Bahrain go, yeah, let's become Islamic. That sounds like a brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah, it felt like there was a bit of the story missing when you just said, do you want to do Islam? And they went, yeah, all right. Yes, it will not surprise you to learn that I got the first bit of information from an Islamic website and the second one from Wikipedia. But nevertheless, uh, it's uh, it stuck. <laughs> you have to acknowledge that. In 899, an Islamic sect called the Karmatians set up shop in Bahrain in an attempt to create their utopian society. And they are particularly notable because in 930 CE, they sacked Mecca and stole the sacred black stone that is in the Kaaba there. Mm -hmm. uh, and they took that back to Bahrain where it stayed for 22 years. And then one day out of the blue after 22 years, the stone got given back. It was wrapped in a sack and just chucked into the great mosque of Kufa <laughs> in Iraq. Wow. Along with a note saying, by command we took it and by command we have brought brought it back <laughs> <laughs> wow like a drive-by on a car or something. <laughs> don't let that massive mosque full of really angry people <laughs> who are really irritated that you stole this rock from them don't yeah. worry about that but actually i think this event a i think the reason they took it back may have been because somebody paid a ransom for it uh, but it also okay. it broke the stone they had to repair it afterwards Right, okay, yeah. No, I've heard that the stone is broken, and that's why. Yeah. Uh, the Carmatians were eventually overthrown, as everyone is eventually, and a variety of owner-occupiers move into the area as various empires ebb and flow. I'm not going to go into them because it's just lots of names of empires. Uh, so I'm going to leap, leap, Ryan, to 1521. Okay, my favourite year. Yes, well, at this point, the Portuguese arrive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course they do. So they take over the place. They rule for 80 years until they were driven out by the Iranians, a.k.a. the Persians, uh, which led to another couple of hundred years of Iranian rule with a few pauses for invasions from nearby Oman. Hmm. Now, in 1860, not to be outdone, the British arrived, eager to offer <clears throat> protection. <laughs> Good old gangsters that are the British. Yes, yeah, uh, nice country you got there. Shame <laughs> if anything happened to it. <laughs> uh, Bahrain did try and get support from the Iranians again, or the Ottomans, and they wouldn't help. So they signed a treaty with Britain with not many options in front of them. To give a sense of the one-sidedness of the treaty, the next treaty, which was in 1868, said the ruler could not dispose of any of his territories except to the United Kingdom and could not enter into relationships with any foreign government without British consent. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like the kind of thing that the British might do. Yeah, a peer-to-peer -peer kind of system. <laughs> you do mm. what we say. It will not surprise you to learn that some of the people of Bahrain were not keen on the terms and conditions that were being applied. Uh, in 1911, a group of Bahraini merchants demanded restrictions on British influence, and Britain had to think about it, and then arrested the group's leaders and exiled them to India. Yeah, I wonder what they thought when that happened. Were they like, ah, <laughs> oh, this was a... I Poor mistake. I or... regret everything. <laughs> or was it a long-term plan to try and get themselves to India? Well, maybe it was one way to get a free trip, I suppose. Yeah. Now, during this period, as a side note, that the pearl diving industry really grew up quite a pace. But in 1932, nobody cared about pearls anymore, Ryan. Why do you Why? think that is? Uh, because they got something else. Something else instead. Gold? No, black gold. Black oh, oil. Oil. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, they find oil. Bahrain starts to develop. In 1930s, Bahrain Airport was developed. And shortly after that, the Bahrain Maritime Airport was established for flying boats and seaplanes, which is not relevant to the story. But I just know, I know you love a seaplane. So I, I love a seaplane. <laughs> I got a little shiver down my spine when you said seaplane. Seaplane airport, no less. Just saying, it is the best vehicle ever. I know. You can fly, you can land it anywhere. And you get to wear one of those cool leather jackets when you do. Sure you do. Now, in 1939, Ryan, World War II began. That's our time period. Bahrain joined in on the side of the British, uh, unsurprisingly. <laughs> yeah, shock. <laughs> but after World War II, anti-British sentiment was on the rise. And as we've seen in loads of other places, the drive for independence takes off. Uh, until eventually, on the 15th of August 1971, Bahrain declared independence. It doesn't seem that long ago, does it? I was nearly born. Very nearly born. You're so old. Shut your face. <laughs> now oil money kept the place going for a while but they didn't let it run everything they were quite smart they chose to diversify their economy and in the 1970s when war in the lebanon made beirut which was previously the financial center unstable bahrain was there to pick up the pieces became a quite substantial financial center 
Makes sense. I like the idea of diversifying your portfolio. Exactly so. They were smart about that. So they uh, they had a failed Islamic coup in 1979. They had popular uprisings between 94 and 99, where there was a weird alliance of leftists, liberals and Islamists, apparently, joined up demanding more democracy. More democracy. More democracy. These died down in about 1999, when Hamad bin Ilsa al-Khalifa became the Emir of Bahrain, and he started elections, gave women the vote, and released political prisoners. Nice. It's not an ongoing good news story, though. By 2011, protests that were part of the broader Arab Spring protests, if you remember, uh, they were suppressed in Bahrain with violence. And in 2021, Amnesty International said, 10 years after Bahrain's popular uprising, systemic injustice has intensified. Oh, man. Bit dodgy. Okay. But we don't know what the future holds. Bahrain's own future plan, known as BNSP 2050, places an emphasis on diversifying the economy, education, sustainable growth, and it's got uh, big targets for renewable energy, water conservation, and sustainable waste management. So here's hoping the bright future they see for themselves is one that they share with all of the people of Bahrain. Yeah, I like that. All by 2050, I yeah. noticed there. So yeah. it's not that far away. It's coming up. Coming soon. Are you on track? Mm. Let us know. I want to go to Bahrain in 2050 and see what it's like. I will go with a checklist. Here's what yeah. you said. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Thanks, Pete. No worries. Lauren Ibsen Dolosiamet. Consectator. What's he saying? Oh, no idea. Who is he again? Oh, he's one of those Italian guys who took over the village. Oh, right. I like his uniform. Yeah, yeah, it's shiny, isn't it? How long do you think he's going to go on for? I don't know, he's not saying any signs of stopping yet, is he? I've got to get back to my farm. Oh, me too. I mean, they seem nice enough. Yeah, they're all right. What's that thing he's holding? I think it looks like a scroll or something. Oh, it could be a menu. A menu? Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're maybe they're planning a feast. Oh, you think? That sounds nice. Well, it could be. He does seem very passionate about whatever he's going on about, doesn't he? I just wish he'd hurry up. Been going on for ages. My legs are getting tired. Do you think they have a word for boring? Probably. For speeches like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, I think he's done. Yeah, he's rolling up his scroll. Oh, oh right out. Well, that was fun. Catch you later, Colin. Yeah, see you, Terry. Love to the wife. You too. All right, Peter, I am fully oriented on Bahrain. I know its history. I know where it is. I know almost everything. What I don't know about, though, is Latin. You don't yet? The only place I know it from is Asterix Comics. Ah, yes, a fine source of learning, I would say. Um, mm. well, what is Latin, Ryan? It's a language, the language of the Romans, as you rightly point out, from Asterix books as well. They're crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, specifically, it originates in the area of Latium, which oh, okay. you would know today as Lazio or Lazio. Lazio. That's yeah. where Latin comes comes from. Yeah. Huh. Good fact. It belongs to the Italic branch of the Indo-European languages, and it is a dead language, Ryan. Yeah, what do we mean by dead language? Well, being a dead language doesn't mean it never gets used or that nobody speaks it. It just means there's no native speakers of the language. Ah, uh, okay. Because I was going to say, because like it gets used a lot, doesn't it? Like Particularly in academic fields. It does. And actually, it's also the official language of the Holy See, which is basically the Vatican Sea. Technically, there's a difference. So you'll see celebrities such as the Pope using it. Okay. But it is still a dead language, even though some people use it. Because it's not their native language. So it's the official language of the uh, Holy See. It's not their native language. So if we get the people from Lazio to start talking Latin, it would revive it? Yeah, I guess so. Come on, people of Lazio. <laughs> and uh, Latin was for centuries also a kind of international currency language. It was the language of diplomacy. So you didn't learn 50 languages. Everyone in the elites and the nobility would speak Latin so they could all talk to each other. And it was also the language of science internationally. And it still is today in a lot of ways. Uh, as you rightly point out, we still find Latin in all sorts of places. In medicine, get me 20 milliliters of cure-all. Stat. Stat is statim, the Latin for immediately. Uh -huh. 
is that what they mean? You'll find it in law, phrases like caveat emptor, buyer beware, or habeas corpus, you should have the body. Yeah, I've heard of habeas corpus. <laughs> yes. And Harlan Corbin. <laughs> no, I think that's an author, but uh, keep going. Okay. Nice try. And another place it's used that you, people will have seen it without realising oftentimes is in design. Latin is used to occupy space where there's text on a graphic design, where you don't have the text yet and you don't want to distract from it, but you want things to look like text. The famous lorem ipsum est. Oh, of course, lorem ipsum est. Yeah, you just put some random words down, don't you? And well, it's not random. It's actually text that's come from a first century BCE philosopher called Cicero. So it's a, it's an extract, essentially, of a Latin tract. I, do you know what? I, I just thought it was gibberish. No, yeah, it's not. So, yeah, it's, it's not really a dead language. I'd call it an undead language because it's still walking around doing stuff. <laughs> Technically, no... Uh, Zombie no language. Life. Zombie language. There you go. They still teach it, don't they, in schools and stuff? They do indeed, in private schools in particular. So, yeah, that's it. That's what Latin is. And I'm going to talk a bit about Latin, in a way, (laughs) in Bahrain during the years 1939 to 1945. If this had been my episode, you know, this whole thing would have been in Latin, right? <laughs> I don't doubt An hour it. of solid Latin. Latin of me going, okay, it'd be like going to Catholic <laughs> Mass all over again. <laughs> all right, uh, let's have a sketch. Charles, take a seat. First of all, congratulations on your success for discovering so many new species during your two-year trek across the Amazon. Thank you. But I did want to ask, are you okay? What do you mean? Well, it's just, you know, some questions have been asked about the naming of some of these new species. Oh, really? Yes. I I mean, the first species you discovered. The butterfly? Yes. Well, it's rather splendidly named. Artogia bellatracius, which is, I believe, named after your wife, Tracy. Yes. Well, that one's delightful. As beautiful as she is, I'm sure quite. Then we move on to your second find. The beetle. Yes. Lamprima, oh how I miss you, Tracius. And? Well, again, lovely. But your next find. The bird. Yes. Opisthocomus, why won't you reply to my letters, Tracius? That is rather unorthodox, wouldn't you say? Not really. Right, well, um, well then we have the spider. Argiope, who the heck is Derek Tracius? Right. And then there's uh, Tropodorus, please don't leave me for Derekus, Tracius. Yeah. And uh, Pristabrycon, I'll do anything you want, Tracius. Yeah. Then Lithobates, you're going to really regret this, Tracius. Sounds fine to me. And Samiri, I'm going to end it all, honestly. I am. I'm really going to do it. This isn't like last time. Oh, God, please don't go. Don't go. Don't go, Tracius. I need you as. Yeah. Well, you don't see the problem? All seem perfectly normal to me, Professor Jones. Oh, look, please. Call me Derek. Derek? Right! And we're back. All right, Pete, come on, bring it all together. Oh. We have got Second World War. We've got Latin. We've got Bahrain. <laughs> yeah, this is totally going to come together. Not awkwardly at all. <laughs> <laughs> How much Latin is there in Bahrain at any point, well. let alone during those five years of the Second World War? Let's find out. <laughs> so, yes, Ryan, 39 to 45 is the Second World War, of course. What did Bahrain do in World War II? Eagerly, I thought this is going to be dead easy. So I delved into the archive to find the pivotal role Bahrain played and it goes a little something like this. Bahrain was on the side of the Allies, being a British protectorate. On the 19th of October 1940, four Italian SM-82 bombers bombed Bahrain targeting some oil facilities. They did minimal damage. The end. (laughs) (laughs) That's Bahrain's involvement in the Second World War. Bahrain was not hugely involved in the Second World War, although they did have to divert resources to protect Bahrain after the original bombing exercise. So undeterred, I thought, I'm not going to be stopped. And plus, I've got to fit Latin in here somehow. So uh, I thought about the first Latin, Latin war, and I came up with this, Ryan. Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. Yes, of course. Don't take your dog for a walk when it's raining outside. Nearly, it is good and honourable to die for your country. This is a well-known Latin saying to other people than Ryan. The first bit of it comes from the poem, or doesn't come from, gives the name to the poem from the First World War, Dulce et Decorum Est. This is a Wilfred Owen poem in which the poet witnesses the effect of a gas attack and he watches a young man die horribly in the trenches of World War I. 
Grimm. And Owen in the poem compares the horrible, brutal reality to the noble and high-minded rhetoric of patriotic propaganda. I'm going to just give you the last bit of the poem. It goes, If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie dulce et decorum est pro patria mori war's grim isn't it yeah so that is a long way of saying ryan in our first section we're going to be talking about propaganda oh right okay i love a bit of propaganda me yes and propaganda side note is itself a latin word from propagare meaning to spread or to propagate Uh, in other words spread information favorable to you yeah okay that makes sense propagate propaganda there you go i'm very susceptible to propaganda pete good i'll be uh <laughs> lobbying you for some funds later <laughs> pete's great and deserves cash i agree <laughs> <laughs> now ryan in bahrain in world war ii propaganda was very important uh britain was running the show as it were but they weren't necessarily all that popular in the area for obvious reasons and the war offered the people of bahrain the chance to see the bosses if you like get a bit of a kicking good The Germans saw that opportunity. Uh, In in the region, the Germans started broadcasting Arabic-language radio stations seven days a week. These broadcasts presented Germany as a friend of Islam, a supporter of anti-imperialist movements, and opposed to the British Empire. Did they really mean it? Well, if you look at uh, the Nazis' ethnic (laughs) views, one might suggest they probably weren't going to be super friends to the Arabs, but let's find out a bit more. The people were listening, though. A British political agent called Hugh Waitman reported in 1940 that, quote, a large crowd gathers to hear the German news. And he adds that slogans, long live Hitler and right is with Germany, had been seen chalked on walls around the town. Okay, edgy teens. Edgy teens, yes. Well, this is obviously a concern for the British government. They banned listening to German and Japanese radio stations, but they also countered with propaganda of their own. So two lots of propaganda going on. Everyone's battling is a propaganda war, is part of the war as well as uh, bullets and bombs. Okay, They produced a book called The Alphabet of War, which had an illustrated entry for each letter of the Arabic alphabet, such as portraying C for corruption, where Nazis are drunken degenerates, which sounds a bit more like us, to be honest. uh, It does, yeah, for sure. (laughs) There were also radio broadcasts on the BBC Arabic Radio, which was the BBC's first foreign language station. Oh, okay, that's cool. And in Bahrain specifically, they had their own newspaper, Al Bahrain, which was controlled by the British. And while I was researching all of this, I came across a really cool resource and uh, documents within that. It was in the Qatar National Library, where they've scanned a bunch of old documents, So, and it's anyone free to access. And I found one that was entitled Administration Reports of the Persian Gulf, 1939 to 1944. Okay, that fits in your time period. I was Pete. delighted by the title, I must say. Uh, and this is about 600 pages of, amongst other things, weekly reports by the political agent for Bahrain, a guy called Bertram Thomas, who was basically reporting back to, I think, Cairo, I'm not sure, central government anyway, on what the local people were thinking and feeling about the war and discussing how to apply propaganda to change that. Okay, so, so, so spying, spy records? Not spying, it was more he was going around asking people. It wasn't like, oh, okay. I found this stuff out. It was like, people are talking about this or nobody cares about Churchill's speech as one of them. So there's quite a lot of this week, same as last week, nothing to report. People still mm. feel much the same way as you <laughs> can imagine. But it didn't, yeah, I did as read he all... Sat in a, as he sat in a cafe somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another coffee, smoke, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'll just dash off this report. Yeah, same as last week, in essence. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it did include some interesting insights, and I read it. It was fascinating. I wish I'd had more time to to read it. But um, yeah, there was some insights as to how the British sought to influence opinion in the area. One of the things it mentions is the ruling itself that's against spreading propaganda. It says, Any person who spreads news or makes statements by speech or in writing which are likely to cause public feeling against the Allies or who circulates propaganda from German, Italian or Japanese sources will be liable to punishment not exceeding six months rigorous imprisonment and or a fine rigorous there has a heavy shadow to it it does doesn't it it's like mm, i don't know exactly what that means but it doesn't make me feel good <laughs> no not at all there's prison and then there's rigorous prison <laughs> i don't want to go to rigorous prison no, but i have please. normal prison <laughs> ideally soft and comfy prison <laughs> But there's also sort of positive things that they wanted to do. They clearly used a mobile cinema to show propaganda films around the place. Um, He notes, quote, In Bahrain, we have a 35mm projector with a separate engine and a separate transformer capable of being transported by launch or car. 
Okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it was cool. There's more than Get cinema. Get your latest Marvel movie. Exactly. Um, he also says at one point they're talking about what to do. He says, The mechanics of publicity have a common basis. A major function of Cairo headquarters office is to produce and distribute to publicity centres Arabic material of all kinds. Films, articles, talks, photographs, posters, etc. So it's a pretty big game going on. Yeah. But he also notes Bahrain is actually quite ahead of the propaganda game. But uh, not only does the BBC have the Arabic broadcasts, but he also describes Bahrain as, quote, a pioneer among publicity centres in the possession of its own broadcasting station. I suppose you can't really do much about the Nazis broadcasting, can you? You can't really stop, you can't block their broadcast. You can't stop people's radios from tuning into it. Exactly, you can counter information with more information of your own. You can tell people not to listen, but you can't really stop them, can you? No, not, not radio. So, But they do have to take advantage of where their advantages lie. And one of those is in the fact that they are present in the area, whereas the Germans obviously can only broadcast in the area. They can't, right. so they can't distribute newspapers very easily. Uh, but also, there's an interesting thing that uh, Thomas writes about. He says, "There's one instrument which is indigenous to Arabia, the majlis." Ooh, what's that? The majlis is an Arabic term. It means sitting room, and it's kind of a gathering, a discussion of uh, like-minded people. So, a club, club discussion group, book club, but in other topics, I guess. Okay. So yeah, he says, uh, yeah, there's one instrument which is indigenous to Arabia, the majlis. It's perfectly adapted for propaganda purposes and has a disproportionate importance in societies such as ours with roots in a patriarchal culture where opinion is fashioned by the few. So he's actually referring to it as propaganda. Yeah, yeah, they're very clear about what they're trying to do. They're not uh, beating about the bush. Huh. Uh, they talk about what messaging they should take as well. Uh, at one point he observes, Many Arabs know that a German victory would mean an end to all Arab national aspirations, and they are undoubtedly eager that Britain should not be beaten, at least not too badly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice little caveat at the end. <laughs> it does. Uh, quite telling now, isn't it? And then he adds, it follows that the exposure of German racial philosophy designs upon the Arab world and new order must continue. So keep showing the Germans up for the racists that they are, pretty much. Yeah, OK. Uh, at one point, Thomas asks, uh, someone asked Thomas, sorry, should we not appeal more strongly to the religious sentiments of those of our Arab friends who realise that the issues which we defend are akin to the spirit of Islam? where those represented by the Axis are incompatible with it. But of course, that is exactly the same message that the Germans are giving on the other side of the fence. We are just like Islam, so both sides are pretty much trying to get away with something there, I think. But there is another aspect of this which is super important, which is you have to be credible. You can't just say stuff because if people's day-to-day -day life tells them that that's untrue, suddenly you've lost everything else you say will be doubted, wouldn't it? Yeah, of course. Uh, Thomas notes, Experience shows that it is profitable to rub in Axis untruthfulness, but assertions of Axis hatred and hypocrisy coming from us are less convincing. What does that mean? But he's saying if the Germans think they're better than you, well, yeah, so do we. So we can't really go about uh, saying those Germans are going to come here and lord it over you when that's all we've been doing for the last 30 years. <laughs> oh, OK. Yeah, you kind of boxed yourself into a corner a little bit there. <laughs> exactly. And uh, the Axis, but it is funny because the Axis did have their own credibility problem because I mentioned that they had a not very successful bombing of Bahrain. Mm. The, our guy writes, the untruthfulness of Axis broadcasting was beautifully illustrated in Bahrain last year following an abortive attack raid here. The Italian account of the damage to the local oil field was a travesty of the truth. The bombs fell wide, whilst the ships alleged to have been sunk in the harbour were known to the local Arab seafarers to have no existence. These claims provided the Arabs with a yardstick for measuring Axis news elsewhere and at other times. So they heard oh, the reports about the bombing and went... <laughs> Well, that wasn't what, what happened, <laughs> which rather made them wonder if the rest of what they were being told may have been not quite so true. Yeah, that makes sense. So eventually Bertram Thomas, it's quite fun to read through because then there's another telegram that says we'd like to give Bertram Thomas another job elsewhere in the Arabian Peninsula. And he gets assigned a new role and it's just a conversation about how he gets replaced. But then he, he disappears from the scene, unfortunately, and uh, he comes to the end of the pack. And the last few reports are all handwritten, which is totally illegible to me because I can't yeah. remember. Might, might as well be in Latin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, indeed. But it was a really fun little journey through what was going on in that time, written by the people. It was my first exposure to kind of primary sources, if you like, for quite a while. So I'll put a link to the actual documents in the uh, in the notes as well, because it was a really fun little read. And it was really just, it almost makes it tangible to see these people, because they're scanned documents as well, not just text. Yeah. So you see the sort of crumbling paper with the handwritten notes on top on top of them as well. It was, yeah. it was just a really fascinating thing. It really brings it to life, doesn't it? It makes you wonder where he was sitting when he wrote them and what surroundings he had and the people that he knew. It really sort of just brings it to life. It's great. It really does. Now, I think he must have done a good job because he convinced the people of the 
Arab world that Britain was on the side of freedom and self-expression, to the extent that, in 1948, a British official in the Arabian Gulf was moaning that the efforts had increased local people's knowledge of the world stage at large, quote, particularly of the rights of small nations and the independence of Arab nations, which basically meant they all started asking questions about why Britain was in charge. Hoist by your own petard. Very much so. So be careful how good your propaganda is and exactly what your message might be. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. He had a good job. You know, as Second World War jobs go, writing telegrams is... I'd I'd have taken that one, for sure. I got the very distinct impression that he was wafting about chatting to people and then typing it up and sending it uh, in very paraphrased form because the opinion of an entire nation was condensed into people are getting fed up with the Italians. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's great. Nice one, Pete. Thank you. Welcome everyone, and we think you're going to be really excited about our new approach to managing national communications. Oh, yes, we're very much looking forward to it. Well, without further ado, may I present Propaganda Panda. Well, howdy there. I'm Propaganda Panda. Okay, well, why don't you tell us a little more about this guy? Well, all the big brands are using animals as spokespeople these days. That meerkat, the gecko, obviously a tiger on the cereal boxes. They're a trusted voice, reassuring, and of course, influential. So we thought we could do the same. Ergo, Propaganda Panda. Well, I see what you're saying, but we're trying to subtly influence the views of the populace so they think what we want them to think without ever realising what they think is not what they think, but what we think they should think. I get it. And he's got propaganda right there in his name. And on his t-shirt. Oh, and on his cap. So? Well, it's, it's not exactly subtle, is it? Ah, uh, we thought you might say something like that. So, to answer your question, why don't we let Propaganda Panda respond? Well, howdy there. I'm Propaganda Panda, and I done heard that some y'all out there think people don't like propaganda. But I'm here to tell you that a recent survey proved that 9 out of 10 of the coolest people love propaganda. So, propaganda's great, and that's a Propaganda Panda promise. There you have it, straight from the panda's mouth. Well, yes, I mean... If the coolest people think that, uh, maybe, no, 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 it's just too unsubtle. Well, howdy there, I'm Propaganda Pander. Did you know that being too subtle, well, that can cause cancer? And that's a Propaganda Panda promise. Oh, gosh, cancer? I suppose maybe I was being a little hasty. Gentlemen, we'd love to start working with you and Propaganda Panda. Yes, we thought you'd come round to our way of thinking. Wait, what? Don't listen to them. Listen to me, your friendly Propaganda Panda. Righto. All right, Pete, what else have you got for us? Oh, Ryan, well, we mentioned another area where Latin is in use, and that is the law. Johnny Law. Johnny Law. For example, Pacta Sunt Servanda. Agreements must be kept. Agreements must be kept. This is a dictum that applies to international agreements just as much as it does for agreements between individuals. And that brings us, Ryan, to the Hawar Islands, which is an archipelago of 16 small desert islands between Qatar and Bahrain. As part of Bahrain? Well, I'm glad you asked that. They are geographically, physically, about two kilometres from Qatar, 20 kilometres from Bahrain. But since 1935, both nations have laid claim to this little set of islands. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) These little desert islands. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, in 1939, fortunately in our time period, the British made a ruling. They went, right, we're going to settle this. The British resident who was in Manama, the capital city of Bahrain, ruled. The Hawar Islands belonged to Bahrain. There you go. So 1939 was an annus mirabilis, a fantastic year for Bahrain, but an annus horribilis for Qatar. Yeah. Well, that decision managed to establish a status quo and uh, things rumbled uneventfully on until 1980 when some seabed exploration in the area revealed oil and gas reserves. So right about that time, funnily enough, Qatar suddenly remembered how unhappy it was with the original ruling. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> what inspired their upset? It's a mystery. It just, uh, just came. Just someone turned just up. Some sudden paperwork. upset. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, things escalated badly. In 1986, countries were the both countries were basically on the brink of armed conflict over it. I mean, it makes sense. There's a lot of money. I'm sure there is. So eventually, the countries decided to go to court, the International Court of Justice. Okay, that sounds cool. Well, this in itself apparently is quite unusual for an Arabic country because their culture is based on an Islamic notion of arbitration and mutual agreement, not sort of opposing sides in a court of law in a Western style. Although Western law does have a term for that too, a sentio mentium, the meeting of minds. Sentio mentium. That does sound like a Harry Potter spell. It does, it? yeah. I was, I was thinking in my head, I think something in my house has just started floating somewhere. <laughs> so basically they said, I'm going to sue you. No, I'm going to sue you. And off to court they went. Now this is where, Brian, I found the most excellent passive-aggressive statement to the court from the representatives of Bahrain, which is a document that I found sent in 1999. It said, quote, Qatar, the other side, has not submitted any non-forged evidence that supports its <laughs> claim of sovereignty over the Hawar Islands. <laughs> In my mind, I've got some really bad forged documents. I too was taken with the non-forged part of that particular claim. So I had to find out about it. I found a book called Fraudulent Evidence Before Public International Tribunals, which told me that the court's judgment makes no reference to the fact that Qatar's memorial, which I guess is their representatives, largely based its case for the Hawaz and Zubara, which is another area of dispute, on 82 fabricated documents. <laughs> 82? I know. They wow. didn't muck up. If you're going to do it, do it big, right? The documents yeah. in the Qatar Memorial that are cited in this chapter were later withdrawn and are no longer annexed to the Qatar Memorial accessible on the International Court of Justice webpage. Okay, just then, disappeared. Well, yeah, but then brilliantly it adds, they have been collected in a multi-volume set published by Bahrain. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay, that makes sense as well. <laughs> so, honestly, I don't know exactly what went down, but it sure looks like Qatar submitted a large number of dodgy documents, had to withdraw them, and then Bahrain published them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps it won't surprise you. The court eventually finds mostly in favour of Bahrain. I think one or two of the islands got given to Qatar, but uh, in large part, actually, the ruling was based on the 1939 ruling originally in Bahrain. Okay. So, that settles the matter because Pacta sunt servanda. Agreements must be kept. Mm-hmm. But there is a nice little postscript to the story because partly because of this dispute, there was relatively little development on and around the islands for a long time and consequently, the islands are in pretty pristine condition, which is helpful because the islands now support one of the world's largest concentrations of a somewhat endangered bird, the Socotra cormorant, which gives us a lovely happy ending. How about that? Also, postscript is from Latin. Oh, yes. I didn't even mean that one. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll find out, Ryan, a bit more about the Socotra cormorant after this. Your Honour, I present Exhibit A, my client's diary, which we believe will prove to the court beyond reasonable doubt that he is entirely innocent. Objection. That is clearly not a diary. It is a diary, Your Honour. Your Honour, one passing look at this evidence reveals it is, in fact, the words, Dear Diary, I'm Innocent, written... On a napkin. A, a napkin can be a diary, Your Honour. No, it can't. Sustained. Fine. Evidence B is this letter, Your Honour, addressed to my client from the President, conferring full immunity from prosecution. Objection! This cannot possibly be admissible. Well, why not? Well, for a start, we don't even have a President. We have a King. Oh, right. Uh, one second. Sorry, Your Honour, I, I did in fact mean to say, King, as it clearly says here on the letter. Your Honour, I must protest. Sustained. Fine. Uh, I present to the court evidence C. Uh, this CCTV footage, Your Honour, proving my client was in a completely different location at the time of the incident. As you will see, he was celebrating the birth of his child with his friends. Objection! Your Honour, this is the opening scene from Disney's The Lion King. That's preposterous. Your Honour, I'm starting to wonder if my learned friend here is even a qualified lawyer. Objection, Your Honour. I have my certificates right here, here on the back of this envelope. Sustained. What? All right, Peter, I was promised more. Give me more! I will give you more. Now, Ryan, when you talk about an animal, you sometimes hear them referred to by scientific names, usually two at a time. Ursus maritimus, the polar bear. Yes. Rattus rattus. 
you know what it is? Ratus, ratus. Is it a rat? It is a rat, yes. Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> corvus splendens. That's a bird, corv, corvid, something, corvus splendid. It's a, a peacock. It's a house crow, very close. And of okay. course, homo sapiens. Uh, that's humans. It is humans. Now, all this is what's known as binomial nomenclature, and it's a formal system of naming species of living things by giving each a name composed of two parts which use Latin grammatical forms. Although I would observe that the words themselves don't have to be Latin. Sometimes they're the names of people as a way to honour individuals. So, Sophophorus terry pratchetti is an extinct sea turtle named after Terry Pratchett. Yeah, I'm, I think Dave David Attenborough's got like a hundred animals or something, hasn't he, that are named after him as well. I don't doubt it. So let's talk a little about Phalacrocorax nigrogularis. Yes, please. The Socotra cormorant that we were talking about before. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Also known locally as the Lou, uh, but also known rather splendidly as the Socotra shag. I love that. Also, I love the island of Socotra. It's lovely, isn't it? We talked um, about that in uh, the episode on Yemen. Oh, right. Now, Ryan, the Socotra shag is found on the Hawar Islands, where they nest in their thousands. They form roosting flocks of up to 250,000 birds. That's a lot of birds. It's a lot of birds. Even at sea, they've been found in flocks of up to 25,000. They like to hang around together, is the long and the short of it. If you had 25,000 birds fly at you, you'd be scared, wouldn't you? It would be an alarming experience, especially these birds, which we'll come to in a moment. Okay. What these guys eat is fish. The seagrass beds around the Hawar Islands are good place for fishing and cormorants love a bit of fishing so much so they can dive into the water chasing fish and stay under for up to three minutes that's a long time I've tried holding my breath underwater for three minutes and I got to about a minute and a half yeah I can't imagine lasting three I can barely get up the stairs without being out of breath so goodness knows how long I would last Tom Cruise can do nine minutes. Well, Tom Cruise is special. I think we can all agree on that. Now, sadly, Ryan, the Socotra cormorant is a disappearing bird. Uh, at least 12 colonies are known to have disappeared since the 60s. But of the remaining 13 colonies, the Hawa colony is the largest. Okay. It's a very cool bird. It's solid black. It's completely black, although I believe it changes colour during the mating season. Uh, and I have to describe it. The only way I can describe it is dinosaur It is a dinosaur looking bird. I love it. I'll put some pictures up on social media at HHE Podcast. They cool themselves as well by panting. So they were like, so they always look kind of out of breath. And when they run <laughs> around the colony, honestly, they look nothing more like someone stretched out and put long arms on a penguin. <laughs> I say that okay. as a, the highest form of compliment, frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so as I say, it's harder to find them these days. So uh, here's hoping for a safe future for the Socotra cornament, Latin name Phallocrocorax nigrogolaris, which lives on the Hawar Islands and were declared as belonging to Bahrain in 1939. That is to say, Latin in Bahrain between 1939 and 1945. So that's it, Ryan. That's how I've brought together Latin in Bahrain between 1939 and 1945. Will Judge Dursley find it latin enough? Who knows? All I can say is, Nemo Iudex in Kazuasua. No man shall be a judge in his own cause. Whoa, you have uh, thrown down the gauntlet there. (laughs) I look forward to seeing what the judge has to say about that. But I've got to say, I don't care because I loved it. I thought that was great. I learned an awful lot there because one, I knew nothing about Bahrain and I know very little about Latin and my... Middle Eastern World War II history is very poor. I think the You're key takeaway is sight. I think we can say <laughs> I'm pretty dumb. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. So thank you for enlightening me, Peter. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, and thank you, Bahrain. All right, Dave. All right, Jim. How's it going? Well, my back's playing up, and the old wings ain't folding up right. But other than that, mustn't grumble. Ah, oh, tell me about it. My beak is killing me. Oh, really? Yeah, I can barely car at the goals anymore. Oh, it's tough getting old, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The young'uns don't appreciate what they've got. Oh, tell me about it. All they want to do is flap around. Just look, I remember when all this was cormorants. <laughs> cormorants as far as the eye can see. Now there's what? Barely 25,000 of us. They just don't want to settle down and... Mate! No respect for tradition. <laughs> Have you seen those bracelets they're all wearing? Oh yeah, tracker tags they call them. <laughs> when we were young, we wouldn't be seen dead wearing something like that, eh? Oh, do you remember when Alf came back with that six-pack ring round his neck? Everyone laughed at him. Yeah. Of course. He's dead now. Dead? Yeah. Strangled to death, he was. Oh, and have you seen those kids that are slicking back their feathers with oil? They can barely even fly. That's no wonder the population's declining. Exactly. They should be getting out there and pulling themselves up by their wingtips. Like we did. 
Like we did, yeah. <laughs> We'd head out early, dive for the fish, come back with lunch. Nowadays it's all trackers and oil slips. No wonder they can't afford a nest. You try telling them to go out and get fishing. And they say, oh, no, there aren't any fish left. Oh, yeah, the seagrass has all been replaced by an oil refinery, they're saying. Oh, the nesting ground is a multi-lane highway. I blame migration. Exactly. Okay, Ryan, well, that's me done, which means, of course, it's time to turn our attention to you. Yes, the eyes of the ears of the audience's <laughs> mouths have swiveled in their faces You have a sort of me. Picasso audience member, don't you? There's <laughs> features all over the shop. <laughs> Let's wheel out the doors later, Ryan. I've done, I've done it already. It's right here. Oh, okay, sorry. sorry. Yeah, I got a new one for 2024. It's tiny. Look, it's upgraded. Version 2.0. It's not an app, is it? I can install it on my phone. <laughs> yeah, it is. All right, let's give it a go. Let's press the button. Okay. Your place is... Scandinavia. Okay. All right. So, broad, yeah. That's a nice group of countries to look at. And your time is... 1500 to 1600. Okay. I'm hoping that's Vikings. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing it's not. I but think you can make it, it, make it Vikings, whatever happens, Ryan. That's my advice. Okay. And your topic is... Knitting. 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 Scandinavia is looking like a very lucky choice suddenly. <laughs> Knit one, pearl one, pillage one. That's that famous... That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so knitting in Scandinavia during the 16th century. Yeah, well, it could have been worse. It could have been knitting in South Africa in the early 200s, <laughs> couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's very true. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> well, good luck with that, Ryan. I very much look forward to seeing what you come up with. Yeah, don't needle me about it. Hey! I'll get you a good yarn. Will you? Hooray! (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay, so there you go. That is our show for this week. Thank you all for listening and thank you for rejoining HHE Podcast for 2024. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show like Tim Scientist, who kindly left us a five star review on Apple Podcast, who not only enjoys the show, but attributes a medical miracle to us. This podcast healed my sight, he says. I recently started listening to podcasts after getting laser eye surgery. History Happened Everywhere has provided me with great entertainment and soothed my eyes back to health. There you have it. Doctor approved. Yeah, that's because we're a bit of a spectacle. (laughs) Now, if you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook or X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And subscribe to those for an alert every time we post extra content like facts, photos from the show, other bits and bobs. And if you'd like a little bit more HHE Podcast in your life, do go check out the Stupid History Minute podcast where Pete and I guest hosted an episode on The Groom of the Stool. That's right. We're going to be back again very soon with... The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Peter. Thanks to you, Ryan. And that is it. I guess all that's left to say is... Te ordere. History happened everywhere. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Have you been scribbling Latin all over the bathroom walls? Yeah, why? What do you mean, why? It's the bathroom walls. Well, I read that ancient Romans used to write graffiti on the walls, and I thought if it was good enough for them, it's good enough for us. But we're not ancient Romans, Ryan. Yeah, I know, but it gives the place character, don't you think? Character? It looks like a Latin teacher's had a breakdown in there. Exactly. It's educational. You can learn something while you're brushing your teeth. Learn what? How to vandalise property in a dead language? It's cultural immersion, Pete. It's like living in a historical artifact. Like living in the mind of a maniac. Get it cleaned up before the landlord sees it. Why? What'll he do? Evictus, Ryan. Evictus! See? You're learning Latin already. Ryan, you're an idiotum nonsensicus. Et tu, Peter?
Dick is sick, Dick unknown, Dick is this is day, at Dick Salway, 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 Salway,